Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this IFG live event. I'm Joe Marshall, senior researcher in the Institute's Brexit team. And yes, we do still have a Brexit team, for us at least Brexit isn't done just yet. From Nando's to Everspoon's IKEA to BP, we have seen weeks of a flurry of news stories and frantic Twitter threads about shortages on the shelves. I know that reports of a milkshake drought and a shortage of wine at Christmas certainly raised a few eyebrows in the IFG office this week. Now, blame for this disruption has been pinned on a range of factors, from a pandemic to the UK's post-Brexit immigration policy to shortages due to COVID lockdowns. But are things about to get worse? The winter is likely to see not only the traditional spike in demand for Christmas, but also an increase in COVID cases. And not all the impacts of Brexit have yet been felt. The full force of post-Brexit border checks is yet to bite, with extensive new customs and health checks due to be introduced on goods imported to Great Britain from the EU later this year. Although the latest reports are that the government is considering delaying these checks yet again. And we were also expecting some new checks on goods moving between Great Britain and Northern Ireland until uh, the government announced on Monday this week that it was postponing those checks indefinitely. But with the UK and EU still at odds over how to implement the Northern Ireland Protocol long term and the DUP threatening to collapse the executive, I think it's fair to say this latest delay doesn't provide long term certainty. So businesses have a lot on their plate. Does this all risk the perfect storm and the risk of more disruption? And if so, what can be done to help mitigate it? Or have we seen the worst of the crisis as firms adapt and learn lessons from previous COVID and Brexit disruption? To discuss these issues and many more, I'm delighted to be joined by an excellent panel. We have William Bain, Head of Trade Policy at the British Chambers of Commerce, which represents tens of thousands of businesses uh, across the UK, small and large, which together employ nearly six million people. And I think it's almost a year ago to the day that we last had William on a panel talking about lots of border rule changes, many of which we're still waiting to see. So great to have you back, William. We've also got Ellie Darkin, Senior Associate at Consultancy Firm Global Council, who spends her time uh, helping firms adapt and prepare for new trading rules. We've got Julian Jessup, Economics Fellow at the Institute for Economics Affairs, who has written extensively about many of the shortages and labour shortages that we've seen at the moment. And last but not least, I'd also like to welcome Ian Wright, Chief Executive of the Food and Drink Federation, which represents over 800 firms in a sector that has borne the brunt of much of the recent disruption. Before we start, a few housekeeping rules. Just to let you know that this event is on the record and is being recorded, and the recording will be available on our website shortly afterwards. We are also tweeting from the IFG events account, so please do follow along. And you can tweet along too using the hashtags IFGBrexit and IFGTrade. And we are very keen to hear from you. So please do make sure you submit your questions using the chat function on Teams. Uh, please make sure you keep your questions nice and short. And if possible, upvote the questions that you like the look of so that I know what is popular and I can put those questions to our panel. So I think that is more than enough for me. Um, Ian, I'm going to come to you first. The food and drink sector, you know, we know have borne the brunt of a lot of disruption. There's been lots of stories about shortages. And I know that just last week, I think, the Food and Drink Federation put out a paper saying that you know, exports to the EU of food and drink had fallen by something like 27% in the first six months of this year compared to the first six months of 2019. Can you just sort of paint the picture for us? What is life like on the ground? What sort of challenges are your firms facing? Thanks for asking me. Uh, I, I think the simple answer to the question posed at the start of this on that first slide is yes, it's going to get worse, and it's not going to get better after getting worse anytime soon. Um, and I think it's important to understand that the backdrop to this is um, some pretty important structural changes to the UK labour market. And I think particularly, I mean, I'm only particularly able to speak about food and drink, the food and drink labour market, which although we as a sector in manufacturing employ around half a million people. The farm-to-fork food chain is about four million people. And it's our view that we're uh, short of about half a million workers. So one in eight of our uh, desired staff is simply not there. 
Uh, and that is the combination, that's driven by the combination of a number of factors, and Brexit is only one of them. The, the post Brexit world is obviously different. Um, but I think there is the first thing I would say is that there is a bit of a lack of real understanding of exactly what is driving the numbers here. And that's because the data we have isn't complete. So we think that about uh, 1.4 million people went home at the start of the COVID crisis as a consequence of uh, COVID EU nationals going home. At least that's the ONS figure. But if you ask the ONS to tell, tell you how many people who went home who weren't registered for settled status or leave to remain, then they don't know that number. And it would appear that that might mean that as many as two or two and a half million people went home and only a small number of those have come back. Now, of course, they weren't all in the food and drink sector. The second thing is that we also know that about three or four hundred thousand people switched into the online retail sector uh, last summer. Those jobs are interesting for people. They're very, uh, it, it's almost certainly the case that one of the main drivers of the lorry driver shortage that we currently face is that HGV drivers, qualified HGV drivers have gone into being distribution drivers for Tesco and Amazon because they're nicer jobs. They don't require you to get up at four in the morning and they're better paid. And so that is, that is a structural change which we will not reverse itself. In fact, we'll see more people going into online. And then the final factor that we don't really understand, and I, I, I know the Bank, Bank of England has talked about this, and they don't really understand entirely why this is happening. A very large number of people and a very large number of people who were in food and drink have become economically inactive. So older people have just settled for a different lifestyle. They've decided not to go back to the rat race after COVID or they've decided to work closer to home. All of those things have driven the, uh, the labour shortages we face. The result of the labour shortages is that the just-in-time system that has sustained supermarkets, uh, convenience stores and restaurants, so the food has arrived on shelf or in the kitchen just when you need it, it is no longer working. And I don't think it will work again. I think we will see we are now in for permanent shortages. Now, these shortages don't mean that you're going to run out of food, but they do mean, as last week, the whole of the east of England uh, was basically unsupplied with bottled water because it was just not possible for the businesses that move that stuff around to supply that and everything else. And, and businesses took a prioritisation decision to prioritise uh, products with a higher margin. And so, you know, that's a first world problem. Nobody's going to nobody's going to be uh, completely bereft if they can't get bottled water. But what is changing now is that the, the, the fact that the UK shopper and consumer could have previously expected just about every product they want to be on shelf or in the restaurant all the time, that's over. And I don't think it's coming back. Great. Thanks, uh, thanks Ian. You've given us a great sort of oversight of all the different causes because we have to accept this is a very complicated picture and it's not just Brexit, not just COVID, but everything together a great sort of look ahead as well, which is some of the themes I want to get back into later in the event. William, I'm going to come over to you now. I mean, are you hearing similar things from your members, sort of similar causes uh, that Ian's outlined? And I suppose I was going to ask you as well, and I think we've got a question coming already about this um, in the chat. We've had some new data from ONS this morning about uh, the UK's trade with the EU and what looks like some longer-term impacts of Brexit coming through the data. Um, what do you make of all of that and what is causing disruption for your members? Yes, indeed. Thanks, Joe. Um, always got to be cautious with this ONS data. Um, uh, sometimes it's uh, very useful, I think, to put it together with the HMRC data. And, of course, the month-by-month -month figures you know, do fluctuate. Uh, but I think the most interesting thing out of today's data is the comparison with where things were three years ago. And that's probably the safest comparison point uh, to take out, you know, the, the stockpiling, the unbundling of stockpiling, and then the effects of the pandemic. And if you look at that data, um, you know, in July of this year, um, imports with the EU were uh, $3 billion lower. Uh, than in July 2018, and our exports to the EU overall uh, were £1.7 billion lower. So we are seeing that effect um, of 
you know, it being much more difficult to export to the EU. Many of the members uh, of the Chambers Network up and down the country um, have seen such difficulties in getting food uh, products like agri-food um, and other products into the EU market that um, that they've given up trading or, or at the very least put a pause on it because uh, of the uh, vastly bigger burdens. Um, I think in terms of overall the economy, I mean, um, absolutely agree with Ian that we're seeing structural changes um, in the food industry. Um, there are some maybe shorter term issues in, in other sectors. Uh, so some of it is cyclical. Um, but I think it's the, it's the swathe of how much the skill shortage crisis is covering parts of the economy that is is truly remarkable. I mean, we're looking at everything from the care sector to hospitality uh, into food manufacturing, food processing, HGV driving. Um, and it, it really does call for uh, some urgent action. Um, you know, we're going to talk later on about solutions, uh, but it's clear that we need to build upon what's in the TCA uh, to give additional flexibility. But the UK government's also got to look at its wider immigration policy um, to make sure that we don't end up with a structural skill shortage crisis. Uh, this morning, uh, the British Chambers of Commerce are going to be writing to uh, the business secretary and other cabinet ministers to call for a cross-business, cross-industry summit. Uh, we think the structural issues are so great, uh, the risks to supply chains uh, running up to and through Christmas um, are um, so concerning uh, that we want to see uh, ministers bring everyone together, uh, all the key stakeholders in business, and let's thrash out some solutions to make sure we don't have disruption in the run-up to Christmas. Great. Thanks, William. Um, another sort of quite stark reminder of all the different things that firms are facing and some of the uh, really useful suggestions of things uh, that could be done to try and improve matters. Um, Julian, I'm going to come to you now. I mean, Ian and William have talked quite a lot about labour shortages being a big part of the problem. And if the CBI have said that it might take two years to resolve some of these problems, the road haulage association saying it might take 18 months in the road haulage sector. I mean, uh, you know, how long do you think some of these problems are likely to last? Are they short-term or are they big structural changes? And I know another interesting theme, but I think it's come up in the questions from the audience as well already, is, um, you know, is the UK an outlier here or is it part of a global picture? OK, well, the the last point is a good point to start. I mean, first of all, the UK isn't an outlier. Um, these are very much global problems. Um, all major economies basically are facing uh, problems in the supply chains. Um, if you look, for example, at what's happening in manufacturing, actually, the US manufacturing seems to be reporting the, the biggest problems in terms of supply delays. Uh, within Europe, it's actually not the UK. It's actually the Netherlands and Denmark seem to be facing the bigger problems. Uh, things like the construction sector as well. Actually, the European construction sector is doing a lot worse than the construction sector in the UK. Uh, Labour shortages are, are certainly global, um, including a, a worldwide shortage of HGV drivers. So um, a lot of this is global. Um, that said, there are some specific UK factors on, on top of this. Um, some of them are, are unrelated to, to Brexit, so things like the, the pandemic in, in July, and also new tax rules, IR35, which are making it harder to, to get agency drivers in the, in the lorry industry. Um, that said, Brexit is, is definitely playing a part at the margin. Um, I don't think it's a, as a bigger factor as some people think. Uh, in particular, I think some of the estimates for the number of people who have you know, EU citizens who've left the UK labour force are, are exaggerated. And uh, also the reason some of them haven't come back is not necessarily Brexit red tape. It's simply that you know, they're unwilling to move countries because of COVID uncertainty. And other countries in Europe, particularly Germany, are facing problems getting migrant workers to come back because of COVID. So um, I think Brexit is, is playing only a small part. But it's definitely a factor. And even I, as a sort of you know, Brexiteer and a Leave voter, would, would accept that Brexit could have been done better. Um, I think it does make sense to, to be more flexible on, on visas in particular. Um, I'm sceptical that it would make much difference in, in the HGV driver sector because, you know, frankly, 
many of these HEU drivers can now get better jobs anyway in Europe. Uh, but there are other sectors, particularly in the food supply chain, agricultural labourers, um, you know, the poultry industry in particular is, is screaming out for, for more workers. And I think more flexible visa rules there will be helpful. Uh, if anything, I think, by the way, the government's got this the wrong way around. It's sort of prioritising uh, restrictions on so-called low-skilled migration, which actually typically means low-paid. I mean, I couldn't do lots of the jobs that we have shortages in. Um, I think instead we should be encouraging low-skilled migration because often those people are doing jobs that local workers don't want to do at all. Great. Thanks, Julian. Uh, really interesting points. Definitely really important to sort of pick out the sort of global trends that are going on as well and causing, you know, contributing to a lot of these problems and all of that makes them much harder to address as well. Um, I think we've heard you know, quite a lot about you know, now what is going on, heard from all of you a good picture of sort of what's happening on the ground. But as I sort of trailed in the intro, we know that businesses are having to prepare for a lot of sort of challenges on the horizon as well and things coming up later this year. Um, I mean, one of those things is the introduction of full import controls and goods coming from the EU. Um, Ellie, I know you've been doing a lot of work on this. I mean, could you just give us a sense of what is changing and sort of how big a deal is it for firms? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. Thanks. So essentially, there are, there are two key batches of changes coming down the line for EU importers. One of them is from October 1st, and that's around the SPS documentation that is needed for food and related goods to, to enter Great Britain. So SPS is kind of another word to talk about health and safety checks that apply to food and plant imports. Um, but this essentially means for businesses some quite onerous um, requirements to comply with health certification for food and plant products and animal byproducts and so forth. And then later on from January 1st, we're going to see a whole nother batch of changes, which will be the much more material changes for businesses, which relate to the sort of physical checks that will take place on goods crossing the border, plus the requirement for full customs documentation, the payment of things like VAT and any like duties at the border, and a whole range of other documentary requirements relating to things like safety and security uh, documentation. So the, the sheer amount of changes that will be facing EU importers will be quite severe. There's going to be a lot of changes that businesses will have to adapt to. And I think what we're seeing at the moment is a real kind of patchwork picture of readiness across the EU. And that depends partly on the industry, because some industries are naturally subject to more checks and controls than others. The agri-food supply chain, for example, we know is particularly going to be hit by this, um, the implementation of the UK's border operating model. But we're also seeing a really patchwork picture of readiness across EU member states, because the documentation and some of the processes that are required at the member state level, um, you know, you need documentation to be translated into national languages. You need different competent authorities within EU member states to have prepared their own systems and processes to allow businesses to, you know, obtain these certifications and approval processes. And I think what we're seeing is, a, is a, just a really mixed picture on the EU side and also on the UK side of how ready businesses and governments are for these changes. Thanks, Ellie. That is really helpful just to sort of set the scene for another set of challenges that firms are having to face. I mean, Ian, just to come to you on sort of import checks, I know that I think the Food and Drink Federation wrote to the government not long ago expressing concern about the checks that are planned. Um, I mean, what kind of concerns do your members have? And I mean, are you calling for the deadlines to be extended again and to avoid having to deal with these right now while you're dealing with all the other supply chain disruptions? We're not calling for uh, the deadlines to be changed, although I think they may be. But I think they may announce that as early as this afternoon. Um, and uh, I mean, that will just probably put the tin hat on it for many of our members who are beyond frustrated about the situation they find themselves in. Um, uh, and I was going to read you a quote from somebody I talked to yesterday, but I decided it's too incendiary. Um, but I do think I do think that there are some, and I think Ellie put it very well. These are extremely complicated, and these are, these are going to have bigger impacts than the export uh, export checks that we we saw coming in uh, the early part of this year. Because in the food industry, only about one in five businesses export, but just about everybody imports something, usually ingredients, uh, not necessarily finished product. So where there are particular concerns are around the availability of vets, 
to sign stuff off. There's a real problem about vets in Europe. There's a big worry about, and, and this I think you have to understand, we have a very fragmented supply chain in the sense that there are thousands and thousands of businesses sending quite small amounts of stuff through this supply chain. And, and we worry a lot about how many of those thousands of European businesses are really ready. And then the third area where I think we, we have a big concern, and we've already seen this established as a major problem in exports, is what's called groupage. And this is where you get a number of different smaller suppliers using the same haulier to, to, to bring a load uh, for in the moment from the UK out to the EU. The problem with that is each single part or each uh, each component of the consignment in the of the whole lorry needs a separate export health certificate, needs separate documentation, and has to be checked separately. Now, it's the only economic way for small suppliers to move goods around. But what's becoming pretty clear is that the hauliers just don't want to do it. It's too much trouble. It's too difficult. It's too. It's it's just too onerous. And um, what we don't know at this stage is how that will play if the uh, it, when the checks come in. I think that's more an issue for the first of January than it is for the first of October. But again, and you could see why at a very basic level government might think crumbs we've got terrible concerns about the way in which the supply chain is working at the moment if we start implementing these changes from the 1st of october we might risk christmas being cancelled for the second year running um and i could see that they might reach for the delay they've delayed a lot of things in all of this and they would see that as a pragmatic and a very straightforward decision I think the problem with doing that for many of our members is our members have invested hundreds of millions of pounds in getting ready for this. And they've hired staff to do this who will then be completely surplus to requirements. And the other thing and the final point I'd make, Joe, is that the current regime disadvantages UK businesses to the advantage of EU suppliers because the, 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 we can't export, but they can import so freely. So actually, you've got a situation where there's a kind of asymmetric um, balance to the way that the current system works, and it disadvantages UK businesses. So in some ways, the checks that will come in are helpful to restoring that balance. And it's slightly odd, and I realise that it's almost extraordinary that we're saying, no, no, implement them, don't delay, um, which is kind of entirely the reverse of what you'd expect me to be saying. Um, but I think I think on balance, our members would prefer most of our members who have done the preparation would prefer that those who haven't done the preparation should not be rewarded. Right, some really interesting points, and I'm going to come uh, to Julian in a second on the sort of uh, interaction I think between sort of uh, import and exporters and the delay on the introduction of checks. Um, but just before that, I know Ellie wanted to come in uh, on sort of readiness for these checks as well and pick up a few more points. So Ellie, I'll quickly come back to you and then over to Julian. Great, thanks. Yeah, I just wanted to, to pick up on something Ian was saying about you know about. Uh, the, the asymmetric relationship between the UK and the EU in terms of what issues importers and exporters are facing. But also a broader point about readiness is that the issue of readiness is really only half the story. I mean, from a lot of the companies that we're working with, what they're telling us is that they can get ready for the changes that are coming in from October 1st and from January 1st. But what actually is more important is about whether it's sustainable to continue trading so much prepared food with the EU um, and whether businesses can really adapt to the and sustain the costs of the new steady state in the relationship between the EU and the UK. Because there's no other real border in the world where so much trade and prepared food it, you know, crosses an external border. And the sheer number of vets and paperwork is, is part of the problem and ready for that readiness for those changes is part of the problem. But that, those problems aren't going to go away unless there's a broader SPS deal between the EU and the UK. So it's, you know, we what I hear a lot is that businesses aren't just worried about getting ready. They're worried about whether the relationship with the EU on trade and food is sustainable. And I think that's kind of a key question that we might need to think about when we're sort of brainstorming solutions on the way forward uh, towards the last part of this webinar. Hmm. Great. Thanks, Ellie. That's a really important point. And definitely, I mean, I think comes back to that point that we haven't felt the full impact of these changes yet and that businesses and supply chains are still going to have to adjust. Uh, Julian, I'll come over to you and you want to come in. 
Yes, I two points, one negative and, and one positive. On, on the negative side, I actually agree with what's just been said, and I, I just emphasise also the importance of uncertainty. I mean, it, it, it's really frustrating for, for businesses, you know, not knowing what the new rules are going to be, but also not knowing when they're going to be introduced. So we've seen this ever since 2016, even before the, you know, even immediately after the vote, there's plenty of evidence that Brexit uncertainty was holding back investment and, and probably trade, simply because people didn't know what they were expected to, to prepare for. So um, I think it only makes sense to delay the introduction of the new rules if, if that delay is for something useful, you know, whether that's fixing problems of you know, the labour market in the UK or you know, making sure that the new customs rules, whatever they are, are, are easier to deal with. That's the negative point. Um, on the positive point, though, I think we already have some evidence that the UK's relatively flexible economy is good at adapting to these shocks. Um, I mean, it's obviously true that there was, for example, a, a big fall in exports of food and drink to the EU in the, the first half of the year. Uh, but almost all of that fall was in the first couple of months after the end of the, after the, end of the Brexit transition period. Since when our, our exports to the EU have, have largely recovered to, to pre-Brexit levels, um, instead, the main problem, and this applies to trade generally, seems to be on the import side, uh, which is not quite what people expected, and people are still trying to work out exactly what's going on. Um, I think it's partly because of the pattern of the goods that we tend to import from the EU, things like cars, which are no longer being made because of the global semiconductor shortage. Uh, there might also be a degree of import substitution, so we're importing more from the rest of the world. It might be that we're producing more goods at home. Um, but a positive spin on that perhaps is that we've we've had the big hit to imports already. They've already fallen sharply. Um, once the new rules are finally implemented and businesses know what they are dealing with, uh, then perhaps we'll actually see a recovery in imports from the EU uh, rather than a further fall. Uh, but at the moment, there's too much uncertainty to be clear about that either way. Great. Thanks, Julian. Uh, really, uh, really interesting points. I mean, William, I'm going to come to you now. I mean, both on sort of border uh, checks, but also wider things on the horizon. I mean, what are what is keeping, I suppose, your members awake at night? What are they concerned about? And I think one point that I'm quite interested to get into is sort of how uh, convinced are you that the government is well prepared either to introduce border checks or deal with some of these issues which are coming down the track? Well, it's interesting. If you read some of the accounts of the meeting which uh, the uh, Irish uh, Tanishta, the Deputy Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, had with Michael Gove, um, you know, we could be looking at some issues at Hollyhead uh, in terms of, uh, you know, Irish beef and Irish cheese. Um, so I think the government over the last couple of weeks has done some pragmatic things in terms of the controls it was intending to introduce in October. So uh, so they have told business that um, the requirement to pre-notify all products of animal origin, everything from yoghurt to fillet steaks, um, uh, you know, for 24 hours, is becoming for the first three months a requirement just for four hours pre-notification. Uh, and they've also said that they're not going to check trucks and lorries that come through in that period from October to January. So we've seen some pragmatism. I suppose in terms of whether they decide to postpone the checks, um, you know, and uh, the October um, system entirely, is whether the calculation is that um, the problems that we've identified with lorries not being in the right place, drivers not being in the right place, would get markedly worse, even with any delays in the run-up to that vital Christmas period. So that may drive, you know, just the the the, the delay of the entire uh, tranche of rules. Um, it's important, though, to bear in mind. I mean, the sort of costs that businesses had to adjust to in terms of the January uh, changes. So uh, from that point, uh, we're going to see customs declarations. Uh, origin certification, safety and security certification have to accompany um, items coming in from the EU. And HMRC has valued this at uh, £7.5 billion per year. So that is the cost that business has had to prepare for and will have to meet every year that these arrangements are in place. And I think we're also seeing in, in other areas of policy that the government is thinking twice about pushing the button 
um, on some of the controls that uh, would come out of the trade and cooperation agreement. So we're very concerned at the moment, for example, about the issue about CE marking and whether CE marked goods would be banned from coming into the GB market. Uh, from January 2023, the government extended the easement on CE Mark goods uh, by 12 months. But we're still going to have huge problems in areas like automotive supply chains, where you know car audio systems, you know, largely are coming from Eastern Europe uh, and are CE marked. Um, so there are a lot of issues yet which are still working their way through in terms of a lot of our manufacturing supply chains. And it would be no surprise that we see the sort of pause button pushed on a great many of these um, uh, to avoid further disruption to the economy. Great. Thanks, William. And just a quick follow up um, on that. I mean, where the government might be thinking about pushing the pause button on some of these issues, particularly around some of the border checks and preparations there, to what extent do you think that is genuinely driven by you know, concern about business readiness and ability to sort of adapt to those changes? And to what extent do you think some of it is actually about government readiness, but actually some of the things the government needs to do to be ready to implement those checks aren't quite on track? I mean, I think it was quite notable in the update to the border operating model earlier this summer that some of the sort of key border control posts where checks are going to take place still seem to be in the planning stages rather than be you know, shovels in the ground. Well, HMRC say they're ready to, to go in terms of the customs uh, rules in January. Um, so I think the issues, as you say, are probably more around the food checking systems, more 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 the DEFRA issues uh, than HMRC. Um, I think they are being driven by, by both factors. Um, I mean, the other thing to remember is that in some of the sort of food supply chains, it depends on what terms the EU supplier is providing the goods. So um, some suppliers work on a, a delivery duty paid model. And so they're going to be responsible for all of the, the checks and costs, um, you know, on the, the SPS side and on the custom side until the goods uh, reach, uh, you know, the distribution hubs of the stores in the UK. Others operate on, on a different model. So, um I think the concerns we would have are about the scale of EU trader readiness, particularly those small companies uh, which just have no experience of having to fill out the quantity of paperwork and undergo the quantity of costs that they're going to have to do from January. Great. Thanks a lot, William. That's really interesting. Um, I'm going to come back to Julian in a second to ask about some of the other changes coming up, particularly I'm interested to just quickly touch on sort of the impact of the end of furlough. But before I do that, um, Ian, I might just come to you. I mean, earlier this week, we saw the government announce that it was indefinitely delaying the sort of introduction of planned checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I mean, do you did you, your sector welcome the delay there? And um, I mean, what would have been the consequence if those checks had come into place? Well, I think the Northern Ireland one is the Northern Ireland situation is a bit of a kind of canary in a coal mine, really. It's quite a good indicator of some of the difficulties that may come our way with other checks. But Northern Ireland is a particular kind of problem because you need to you've got to strip out the kind of political and social issues, um, pretty well illustrated by Geoffrey Donaldson's speech yesterday, and um, and the the simple economic and supply issues. I mean, the problem for the Northern Ireland, for anyone dealing with Northern Ireland, and I, I, I would say I'm a bit of a fan about how DEFRA is managing Northern Ireland. I think I, I couldn't fault the competence or the, the um, ability of the teams they've got doing it. Um, but the problem itself is pretty intractable. Northern Ireland isn't a big enough economic unit to sustain supply in many circumstances. And so it's always a marginal trade for those who are, uh, for most of those who are supplying Northern Ireland. And if it gets too expensive, they'll just stop, which is what Julian and, and William were saying earlier. That is the problem. Eventually, in all of these circumstances, the trade will simply stop because the traders won't see any return in it. And in Northern Ireland, that is a particularly big concern. And I, I mean, we've heard this story several times that one or two of the major retailers, the names that we all know, 
are on the verge of either stopping trading in Northern Ireland or changing their business model so that they move to a sort of franchise model so that the fascia stays with the name that we all know, but the people actually running the business aren't part of the, the, uh, the, the mothership, as it were. And I think that is, that is where we're headed with Northern Ireland. And, I mean, I'd say one other thing, which I say on all these occasions, and I, I apologise, but I'm probably the oldest person on this call, uh, so I feel I can say it. So my dad got blown up by the IRA. Uh, he wasn't killed, but he was bloody lucky not to not to have been. And I'm old enough to remember what that does. And I remember the bombs going off very regularly. So anything which takes us back in that direction. And there are two generations who've completely forgotten about all of that. And thank God for that. Anything which takes us back in that direction is to be abhorred. And anything that we as a simple food industry can do that keeps us in in the the, the much better present is to be followed. And I think sometimes economic rules shouldn't apply. And I do think we have a bit of a duty to try and keep the Northern Ireland, keep that part of Northern Ireland life settled and effective. And that will help, I hope, in the complete, in the way above my pay grade resolution of the political issues. Thanks, Ian. And um, I mean, a really good reminder that when we talk about Northern Ireland Protocol, we just have to be very sensitive to the fact that you know, the politics are incredibly difficult and complicated and that, you know, both sides need to you know, take that into account when trying to come up with long-term solutions that work for all parties. Um, Julian, I'm going to come back to you now. I mean, we talked quite a bit about sort of border changes coming in and some of the other issues, but I know it's not just all about the border that, you know, could have an impact on what happens to supply chains later this year. We've got the end of a furlough scheme. We've obviously got this demand. COVID cases, all of these other factors. So, I mean, how, what impact do you think some of these factors are going to have on supply chain disruption? Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of the supply chain problems and the, the labour shortages can be fixed if, if markets are allowed to work properly. Um, and one thing we're already seeing, of course, is you know higher wages for people in those sectors where the shortages are the are the greatest. So, you know, relative wages and prices adjusting to to attract people back into work. Uh, within the HGV sector, for example, there, there are a lot of drivers who've retired over the last few years because paying conditions have been unattractive. So it might be possible to get those back into work uh, by raising prices and wages. Um, not an ideal solution because, of course, that means higher inflation for the rest of us, but at least it fixes the short-term problem. Um, I think the furlough scheme is, a, is another issue here. Um, I think the furlough scheme made perfect sense last year when large parts of the economy were, were shut down. Um, at one point, I think the furlough scheme was protected almost 9 million jobs. It's absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, but increasingly, I think it's starting to do more harm than good because it is locking uh, perhaps 1.5 million people now into, into their current jobs, when actually it would be better than sort of either to go back to work normally or to find jobs elsewhere in the economy. So um, I think the winding down of the furlough scheme is actually going to be a positive for, for tackling labour shortages. Uh, and actually potentially a bigger issue than the question of EU migration. I mean, we um, as Ian said, we don't really know what the, the numbers are of, of EU workers who, who've left the country, but I suspect it might actually be significantly less than the number of people who are currently UK workers trapped on furlough. So I think easing the furlough scheme, winding it down completely, might actually have a bigger impact than changing the rules on, on visas, though in practice I think you should do both. Great. Thanks, Julian. That's really uh, helpful. Um, just before we come on to talk a bit more about how these problems can be resolved, and I know we've already started to touch on that. Um, Ellie, I'm just going to come back to you quickly. We've heard quite a lot of sort of, you know, businesses are facing a lot of problems, a lot of challenges. I want to see if you can give me a bit of good news. What I'm sort of interested in is, uh, you know, what have businesses and government learnt from sort of previous bouts of Brexit and COVID disruption? Are there things that are working better this time round than you've seen previously uh, of you know, things where firms are better prepared or better able to manage these stresses? Yeah, well, I mean, first to reflect on some of the lessons from Brexit and COVID and the combined impact of those things. I mean, I think one of the things that businesses have really taken time to internalise is kind of what a resilient supply chain looks like in the face of disruption. So I think, you know, previous models of businesses have, have, have certainly looked at supply chain optimization as a way to increase efficiency and to reduce cost and to, you know, increase things like time to market. And I think in the face of such severe disruptions that we've, we've seen over the last few years, 
businesses are really starting to look at supply chains in terms of how diversified they are, how flexible they are, and really fundamentally how quickly they can adjust supply to meet demand. Because in, during the COVID pandemic, we've, of course, seen a huge spike in demand for certain goods, um, you know, at the same time experiencing a massive fall in demand for others. So I think supply chains and businesses that can kind of really calibrate their supply to match and meet demand is essential. Because, I mean, a lot of the problems that we've talked about facing supply chains at the beginning of, of, of this session, they're all really underpinned by the simple fact that demand is recovering from the pandemic much quicker than suppliers. You know, all of this kind of feeds into the, the perfect storm of factors that we've we've discussed. So I think a key lesson has been learned really from businesses around the resilience of supply chains and the importance of that. But in terms of, you know, some good news for businesses as well, I think one thing that we're, we're certainly seeing is that businesses have taken the time and the lessons to, you know, reflecting on the cost of Brexit and the pandemic to really invest and build in their internal capacities for trade and trade policy. So this is something that was, you know, very much for a lot of businesses on the margins, especially when, you know, a lot of their trading relationship was centred on just trading with a single market in the UK, for example. So they weren't facing these customs issues. They weren't facing, um, you know, issues around immigration policy and so forth. And now there's, we've seen a lot of kind of really important training going on with businesses right from the beginning of the year until now when, you know, they're really developing their internal capacities and investing in the, in the people within their organisations. And, you know, that has been a really positive story from some the businesses, especially smaller businesses that we've worked with, who have got, undergone a huge learning curve for how to adjust to new, very volatile trading relationships. But as a result, you know, they've been able to, in some cases, learn and expand some of their supply routes and, you know, broaden their export markets as a result of that learning. Thanks, Ellie. I mean, it's yeah, really interesting to hear how firms have been adapting. And that resilience point is uh, very, very important. Um, William, I'm going to come to you now. I mean, I know you want to come in and just mention uh, some other factors that are sort of at play here. But um, as well as that, I'm quite interested to get into some of these sort of resolutions to these problems. So what sort of things do you think particularly the government can do to help resolve some of these issues um, to the extent we can do things to help resolve these issues? Indeed, and, and and some of these issues are, are global problems. I was just going to touch upon the the impact that soaring shipping costs are having on our supply chains. And so uh, some of our chambers are, uh, have members who have experienced a sort of sevenfold rise in shipping costs uh, in the last year or so. Um, and we know, you know, there were some on... Uh, the cost of shipping going to uh, the US last year. Um, we've called on the Competition and Markets Authority to do a full inquiry into how shipping costs are affecting UK businesses. And we hope to hear from them shortly on their uh, on their view on that. Uh, but that's been a major factor. And, and, and we know that, uh, for example, you know, with some sort of deliveries of, of Christmas toys this year, the uh, the ships left um, left China at, at the end of August, um, and there aren't going to be any more for some particular toys. So I think it's shown how dependent we are on sea freight as a means of getting goods from particularly Asia-Pacific, and that these costs have been um, somewhat unexpected um, and have accelerated uh, during the course of the pandemic for UK companies. Um, the other issue is raw material shortages. So um, we're also picking up um, issues around, um, you know, cardboard, plastics, uh, steel. Um, and, of course, this gets us into a very political area because uh, the Trade Secretary made some decisions recently um, around steel, which um, were welcomed by some parts of industry, uh, but were very difficult for others. And this does show this adjustment from uh, having had the Commission do all of this stuff before uh, to the new position of having a UK trade policy uh, with the consequences of these decisions being, being felt at home. In terms of uh, solutions, well, firstly, we need to have, uh, I think, a better appreciation by our government about the impact that these labour shortages and the skill shortage crisis is having um, in our supply chain. So we hope they'll take up our idea 
of, of having a summit uh, across business uh, that will help, I think, come up with the, with the solutions. Uh, we need to see action on temporary visas uh, to ensure that uh, we don't see further disruption in the run up to Christmas. Uh, we need to have HGV drivers put onto the shortage occupation list. Um, there is absolutely no reason why they shouldn't be there uh, when you look at some of the professions which are on the list uh, at the moment. And I think thirdly, we need to get a better relationship with the European Union. And, you know, we're eight months into the TCA now. Uh, we're looking forward to some of the business engagement uh, forum that will be set up. There's talk of a domestic advisory group, uh, a civil society forum where we can join business uh, in the rest of Europe and discuss these issues in the round uh, on at least an annual basis. Um, we need to build upon the TCA. The TCA cannot be the last word. It leaves too many questions up in the air. And we need to build upon it by, for example, having some kind of veterinary agreement. There's a debate about which sort. Um, you know, the EU or the government would like, uh, but we need to have some reduction in the costs that our exporters are having in agri-food products to the EU. We need to build extra flexibility in terms of labour mobility as well into the TCA. We're beginning to detect um, uh, people finding real problems with being able to pitch for new business, being able to supply customers um, in person um, as business travel begins to, to resume. So, in short, we need a stronger EU-UK relationship and trade and more for business building upon that TCA. Great. Thanks, William. I mean, it's a really comprehensive list of some really sort of actionable points there. I mean, Ian, I'm going to come to you now. I mean, do you agree uh, with William on sort of things like a veterinary agreement and sort of building on that relationship with the EU? And I'm also quite interested as well that, you know, some of the measures that the government put in place for the sector earlier this year and during the COVID crisis, sort of the death of resilience forum with industry was stood down in March, I understand. Do you think things like that need to be stood back up again? Well, I think that they've only, they, 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 it was meeting daily, then it met, okay, you know, occasionally through the week and now it's meeting monthly. So in fairness, that forum is still there. There are a lot, and I, I, I can't fault DEFRA's pragmatic, pragmatic approach to engagement. I think I think they're the best department in Whitehall in terms of engagement with their, if you call them their customers, uh, us, their customers or their stakeholders. Um, and I, I mean, I, it's an extraordinary thing for me to about, that I'm about to say, but I, I think George Eustace is an absolutely first-class Secretary of State and does a great job um, because he is so pragmatic and his team are incredibly open to getting, uh, getting things done across Whitehall, particularly when departmental interaction fails. He's, he's really, really good at that. And I, I'm, we're, we're very lucky, I think, to have him. Um, and I really hope he doesn't get moved in the reshuffle, although I imagine there must be quite a high chance um, because they want to promote him. He's, very, he's a very effective minister. Um, but... And um, I do agree with almost everything that William said. I, I think we could we could reasonably ask for a temporary uh, COVID recovery visa that would allow people to come to this country to do some of the, the jobs. That I thought Julian's point about them having the immigration policy the wrong way around was absolutely spot on. I mean, I just think that it's an extraordinary situation for them to be in this position. But they've got themselves onto this book and it's difficult for them to get off it. Um, uh, and I don't think there's much point in business lecturing the government on immigration policy because they're just not up for a conversation on that. And, you know, they were elected on a mandate. They've got mandate. They're, they're exercising it. It's a very good piece by Ian Martin in The Times uh, yesterday, I think, on the whole relationship between business and government. And I think that requires some attention. The other thing I would add is, I mean, business has got to get better at what it asks for. Uh, I mean, we seem to spend our entire time cap in hand with the government and it's not a, it's not a good look. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that I just detect that the EU has, has begun to be a bit more sensible in, in the way it's playing some of this. I mean, I, I, I thought for the first six months of this year um, that the way in which the EU was behaving was pretty poor. Um, and driven by internal politics, I suspect, in 
two or three of the big member countries, brackets, France, close brackets. Uh, I, I think the uh, I think the way that they have come to start to be much more practical about Northern Ireland is, is a really hopeful sign. Um, and we, I totally finally agree with William that we've got to have a better relationship with them. They're our main trading partner. They're going to be our main trading partner for the rest of my my lifetime, I'm sure, just because the numbers work that way. And it's absolutely ridiculous. It's like it's like having a next door neighbour and you know spending your entire time rowing with them, which is just pointless. Uh, you don't have to necessarily like them, but you do have to exist with them, and we should we should get used to that. Um, and if we could do that, and if, as William said, some of the institutions that are there ready to be activated could be activated, there is the chance to build more trust and more cohesion, I think. Great. Thanks, Ian. Uh, again, another sort of great tour de force of the different things that I think about to try and resolve some of these issues. Um, uh, Julian, I'm going to come to you. I mean, one of the issues we've talked about a lot today is sort of supply shortages and with that. And you started touching on earlier about the extent to which the market will help resolve some of these issues. I mean, what do you think the government can usefully do or business can usefully do to sort of address some of the problems we've talked about today? Uh, well, first of all, can you hear me? I just unmuted myself. So, yeah, great. Good. Um, apologies for the dog barking earlier. Um, somebody's trying to shut him up at the moment. Um, I think, I mean, two points. First of all, I think it's right to emphasise on the role of the government should be to allow markets to, to work better. So we touched on this when talking about the, the furlough scheme. Um, there are some sort of unnecessary restrictions, for example, in the licensing and training of HGV drivers that the government is already starting to address. So um, a lot of this can be about making markets work better by removing restrictions. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is that we need to try and minimise the cost of any additional restrictions. So um, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of free movement within the, the single market of the EU. But I think there's not a lot of doubt that um, you know, the migration of workers from the EU to the UK brought significant economic and, and social benefits. And um, I think the government needs to be as flexible as possible on, on how it um, implements the new point system in the ways that both uh, William and, and Ian have, have suggested. Um, I think the second point, though, this is just building on something that, that Ian said. Um, it isn't just about the UK government doing things better, but also the European Union. Um, now, I know a lot of people say, well, it's you know the UK's decision to leave, and so any problems are never be the fault of, of the UK and, and, and Brexit voters. But um, I think most people would agree that the UK, uh, the EU, has implemented the rules in the, you know, the, the least helpful, least constructive way possible, um, partly because they see Brexit as an opportunity to gain some sort of competitive advantages over, over the UK. Uh, in many sectors, particularly things like financial services. Um, so I think we shouldn't just you know, blame the UK government for some of the problems. I think also we should, we should look at the EU and hopefully get a more constructive um, engagement with them in future. Um, I would be wary, though, of bending over too far to, um, to build better relationships with the EU because there is a risk that we then get trapped into continuing to follow EU rules and regulations in one way or another. We, we end up just sort of replicating uh, the pre-Brexit world, but with less say about how all those rules and regulations are, are determined. So um, I know this sounds a bit sort of Pangolossian or uh, unicornish, but uh, I think ideally we need to build better relationship in the short term with the EU, but not miss out on the opportunities to lower trade barriers to the rest of the world and, and deregulate the economy at, at home. Great. Thanks, Julian. That is really helpful. And I think your dog has just joined us just in time for you finishing speaking. So that is uh, great timing. Um, we are sort of approaching the end now. Um, and we've sort of covered a huge amount of ground, loads of different factors uh, that are causing disruption and lots of really interesting and sensible suggestions of things that could be done to resolve things. I mean, I've got sort of a quick fire question I'm going to put to all of you to finish off. And um, I think Ian did answer this at the very start of the event, but I might come back to him to expand on it, which is basically, will supply chain disruption get worse? Um, so uh, relatively briefly from all of you, on my sort of you, Ellie, um, what do you think on that question? 
So I think the I think the short answer is is yes. In the short term, I think things are likely to get worse before they get better, and that's because a lot of the factors that we've been discussing today aren't ones that can be addressed with quick stopgap measures. I mean, the, stru- the, pro- the structural problems facing the UK labour market, the real problems and challenges facing the UK's relationship with the EU. None of these are going to be fixed overnight. And also just another another factor is that, you know, we're facing now a period where businesses are ramping up for Christmas. So we're going to see increased demand um, for consumer goods, for durable goods. And all this is going to compound the, the issue that we've already spoken about already, which is that demand is currently outstripping supply. So I think certainly in the short term, yes, we are going to see more pressures on the supply chain. And I think that may well be a picture that we see well into uh, 2022. Great. What about you, Ian? Is Christmas really cancelled? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, but uh, it, it's going to be different. Um, I, I do I agree with Ellie. I mean, I think it is going to get worse, and I don't, I don't think it will then get better, but I think it will get different. And I think we have to change our expectations of the way the supply chain, certainly in food, works. Uh, and that re- applies just as much to restaurants, bars, cafes, hospitality, contract catering as it does to retail. Um, the other factor that is going to be very different is that the ownership of retail is changing pretty much before our eyes. We haven't t- talked about this and it's probably too late to do so. But you know, it's perfectly reasonable to assume that by Christmas, three of our four major retailers will be owned by private equity firms. Uh, And that will have a major impact on the way they operate and the pressure that they put on suppliers. So we will see a change in in the way in which the supply chain operates because the way the the suppliers and retailers interact will change. And that has some – I I can't at this stage look into the crystal ball and tell you how much that will have an impact on what we're talking about. But I do think from now onwards we should have – we should be. We should get used to the fact that occasionally empty shelves and prioritised delivery that may mean that your particular favourite product doesn't make it across the line every time is going to be the new normal. And I think it's forever. And this isn't just a UK uh, phenomenon. Uh, the the American academic Peter Atwater has talked about this a lot uh, and it it's it's a, in the same way that the financial markets changed post 2008 and the crash i think the combination of covid and what we're seeing here is going to change the way supply chains operate for the future and forever great thanks ian i'm not sure whether to say thank you for that or not but very interesting. <laughs> um, julian i'll come to you I mean, do you agree with ian's assessment and i suppose do you think consumers are ready if that is really what might be on the horizon? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit more optimistic, though, frankly, it's not difficult to, to do that. Um, the, the way I look at it is that I think markets are, are pretty good at adapting. Um, comparison here is with the, the impact of the successive lockdowns on the on the UK economy over the last year or so. Now, each lockdown seemed to have a significantly smaller effect than the one before, basically because businesses and consumers adapted. And I, I think that's the, the way ahead. Um, I think a lot of the problems that we're seeing now are, if you like, part of that adaptation process. So, you know, the, the rapid increase in global shipping costs, for example, is, is surely going to make it a lot more attractive for people to, to enter the shipping industry, either as a, a as workers or uh, more ships to be built. Now, clearly that will take time. Um, the markets can't adjust overnight to a shock as big as we've seen. And I think the biggest shock here is COVID rather than rather than Brexit. Um, but I, I think you sort of underestimate the flexibility of, of markets at your peril. And I think that you know, the supply chain problems will actually you know, get better sooner than people anticipate. Um, that said, there are clearly lots of risks. I mean, we saw that in the in the economic numbers today from the UK. Um, I think, by the way, if other countries also publish monthly GDP figures, we'd see the same weakness in, in countries in, in Europe as well. We're certainly seeing it in things like retail sales and uh, auto production in the construction industry. So the UK is by no means alone in this. Um, but I would hope that you know, with flexible markets, we will fix these problems sooner than many people fear. Great. Thanks, Julian. And William, uh, quickly answer you before I get told off for running out of time. <laughs> um, well, I, with no other evidence than to say things look like they're going to get worse before they get better. And 
unless we have rapid, rapid movement from government um, in terms of filling the supply problems uh, in terms of lack of drivers, um, it, it's likely we're going to have more of these stories about the products that we love being uh, being disrupted and not available at all of the times that we want to see them. I think structurally the rise of online means that we've got to rethink supply chains and uh, think about how you know, some of these markets are, are, are going to work. So um, I hope we're all not being Grinches today, but, but we're being realistic um, that, um, you know, um, unless we get quick action, things are going to get worse. Great. That was pretty unanimous. But um, unfortunately, that is all we've got time for this morning. Uh, thanks again to our excellent panel for helping us make sense of the news stories and what we can expect later this year. If you have enjoyed this event so much, you'd like to watch it again, it will be available on the IFG website shortly. And please do check out our website for more information on our events and reports. I'd also just like to say uh, that you know that Ian is moving on from the Food and Drink Federation shortly. Um, I think it's fair to say his tenure at the Food and Drink Federation has been during a particularly turbulent period. So all the best for the future. Um, but apart from that, enjoy the rest of your day and we hope to see you again at an IFG live event soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.